Well, again, good morning. It's great to see everybody, and I want to welcome you, and especially if you're uh, viewing online, thank you so much for joining us and worshiping with us today. Um, I'm excited uh, today to be preaching for the first time in, uh, in sorry, oh, should kids should go out. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, kids, if you are uh, second grade down through pre-K, so pre-K, second grade, if that is you, you can follow Mr. Billy right through that door right there. You guys are going to go play on the playground, and you have a little Bible story time, and then you're going to come back in and join us for communion. So y'all have fun. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> awesome. So I was just saying, I haven't preached in a month, so I'm a little rusty, obviously, at doing this. Um, and uh, I just want to say in that month, it's been a gift to kind of have a little more space and just time with the Lord to pray and seek him and hear from him. But it's also been such a gift to hear from so many gifted teachers and preachers in our church family um, as we looked at these essential practices. Uh, so just really encouraged by that. I encourage you to continue to press into those four practices of being with Jesus, reading the Bible, prayer, and worship. Um, today we're going to start a new series, and we are calling it Life Made New, A Study in Ephesians. And I just wanted to start this morning by talking about why we're doing Ephesians. Like, Why do we want to spend, we're really going to try to spend the next three to four months uh, working through this incredible book of the Bible. But why? Why Ephesians? Um, I think it's fair to say that we all uh, want to find meaning and purpose in our lives, right? We all are looking for this sense uh, of our lives to feel fulfilled. We want to find love. We want to experience life and, and, and all the joy that life can have. And we want to know that our lives uh, have mattered. We want to have this sense that we've been the best version of ourselves as we've, uh, as we've experienced life. And so in, in that mix of all those things that we want, I think there's a deep question that we all are asking. And the deep question uh, would be, who am I? The question of who am I? What is my identity? I think is a question that we all wrestle with. And I've been thinking about this question uh, a lot in my own life over the past several months. Who am I? And as I've thought through that question, um, I've really tried to press myself on how would I answer that question, uh, not just kind of in the abstract, uh, but really on a day-to-day -day basis. Who am I? Uh, not who should I be or how should I answer that question, not how could I answer that question, but kind of functionally in the midst of everyday life, who am I and how do I live out of that? And so uh, I've been thinking about that and I, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about this question and, and I want you to uh, ask yourself, how would I answer this question, who am I? So if I grabbed you for coffee this week and we sat down across from the table with the other, and I just said, I said, who are you? I'll just ask you that question. How would you answer it? How would you answer the question, who are you? My guess is that some of you would maybe just tell me your name. <laughs> I'm Kathy. <laughs> you know, maybe you'd start there. Maybe you'd tell me what you do for a living. Maybe that's something you'd include in explaining who you are. I, I, I'm a lawyer. I'm a, uh, a student. I'm a stay-at-home parent. Maybe you'd say something about your role. I'm a, a, a wife or I'm uh, a child. Um, I'm a brother. Maybe you'd explain your identity in terms of your story, 
Right? You begin to tell me the things that had happened in your life, the, the life experiences you've had, the, the, the accomplishments you've had. Uh, maybe you share some of your failures. Maybe you share some of the things that have happened in your life and even to you. Uh, if you were answering the question, who am I? You might uh, consider even getting a little more vulnerable and saying, I'm not really sure who I am. Maybe you're trying to figure that out. Even as you sit here this morning, who am I? And I think for some of us, there might be a sense in which we would even say, I'm not even sure I like who I am, if we're really honest. I've been reading this uh, powerful and eye-opening book that I highly recommend to parents in the room and watching online uh, by a guy named Chap Clark. The book is called When Kids Hurt. And he, uh, he wrote this book because he spent decades, just decades, uh, spending time with uh, hundreds, I think even thousands of kids, and just trying to understand kind of their world, what their life looks like in today's culture. And at one point, he, he writes this. He says, the more I've observed today's teens, the more convinced I become that the young people who will emerge from adolescence in the best shape are those who seem able to switch roles and personas as rapidly as a play actor switches costumes. So just think about what commentary that's providing on the world that these kids are entering into, that that would be the pathway to success, the ability to switch personas like you switch costumes. He, he kind of fleshes this out, and this is, this is a little bit long, but I want to read it because I think it really gets at something that I want us to talk about in terms of identity this morning. This is what he writes in the book. He says, I listened as one sophomore girl who described herself as active in church, convinced me that she loved her parents more than anyone else and that she would never do anything to hurt them. Yet almost immediately afterward, within earshot of me, she engaged in a profanity-laced conversation with a friend about a sexual relationship she was having with a boy she had just met. Later, when I reconnected with her, I asked her, how do you think your parents would feel if they heard you having that conversation? She simply smiled and said, well, what they don't know won't hurt them. She added, if they asked me about it, I wouldn't lie exactly, but I know they would be mad at me, so I would make sure that they didn't find out the truth. He goes on later to say, what's being described here is a skill that most adolescents have developed uh, to survive in today's world. It is the proliferation, he says, of identities. The proliferation of identities that vary as a function of social context. They have learned, in other words, to construct multiple selves in different roles and in different relationships. <clears throat> so his point, right, is not just that this sophomore girl was lying to her parents. His point is that this is a survival technique for this teenager. <clears throat> and it's not just uh, used by teens. That's the other point I want to make here. I don't think this is just a phenomenon limited to teenagers. Uh, the world can be a hard place. And I think to varying degrees, in order to survive in the world, many of us have taken up some kind of similar approach to this. We have kind of taken up multiple identities depending on our social context. And, and, and again, I would say to varying degrees, but maybe think about this. Who are you at home versus who are you at the office? Who are you at church versus who are you on a Friday night? Who are you when you're by yourself versus when you're with uh, friends or your family? I think there's a very real sense in which we don't just carry on kind of double lives sometimes, but these kind of multiple lives 
versions or multiple lives. And I think for some of us, we've been doing it so long, it's hard to kind of untangle at times who we really are at our core, at the heart of who we are from all these various kind of versions of ourselves. And I'll just say, as a pastor, uh, being a pastor for about 10 years uh, now, I would say I've met many adults, many adults whose lives look great on the outside, whose lives look great on the outside, but they're struggling in this life because they're playing all these roles in their life. And either out of fear or shame or wounds from their past, they've learned to hide who they are or who they think they are from the world. And often, they've let other people and other things in their life define who they are for them. And so the painful truth is that this brutal world has a way of revealing, I think, just how fragile this this thing called identity really is for all of us. We can get confused. we We can kind of get turned around on who we are in this life. And so this question, I think, is hugely important. Who am I? Who am I? And and can I really know? Now, the claim of the gospel, the good news of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ is that we can know who we are. We can know exactly who we are. And and I hear that as a word of hope. And I hope you hear that as a word of hope. Just to hear that news. You can know exactly who you are is a word of hope to me. Because it says no matter what age you are, no matter what you know or don't know, what you've done or haven't done, no matter what's happened to you, you can actually discover who you really are and what you were made for. There's hope in the gospel when it comes to our identity, who we are. And so many of us and so many around us right now in our culture need that hope. They need the hope of knowing who they really are in Christ. They don't have to keep hiding or pretending. They can know who they are. And so that's the audacious claim that lies at the heart of Ephesians. Uh, And that's why we're going to look at Ephesians together. So that we can know who we are in Christ and we can share the good news with others of who they are in Christ. And so I want to encourage you to get your Bible out uh, or a Bible app and open it to Ephesians 1. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. uh, Just those first couple of verses that uh, Jason just read. And as you're turning there, I want to give just some quick background, kind of give these as kind of bullet points. Uh, I think it's really important for us to understand the context of this letter as we kind of get into it. Like we said, we're going to be spending months in this letter. Let's kind of get at least some, uh, kind of do some due diligence here about this letter. So here's a couple of things about this letter. This is an ancient letter. It was written in the first century by an early follower of Jesus named Paul. That's what it says right there at the beginning. This is from Paul, the apostle. Uh, And he is writing to a group of Christians living in a huge, diverse, cosmopolitan city called Ephesus. Uh, And and that way, it's similar to Houston. Huge, diverse, cosmopolitan. People from all over the world, all right? So there's a little connection point, I think, that's helpful there. Ephesus is a very spiritual city. Uh, Again, I think this is another kind of touch point that's helpful for us. I hear this a lot. I don't know if you guys hear this. Uh, I'm not into religion, but I'm spiritual. There's a lot of that kind of in our culture. And Ephesus was a spiritual culture. At least 50 different gods and goddesses, each with their own temples and shrines, were worshipped by its citizens. Uh, there was a lot of trade. It was a seaport, so people would come from all over the empire, cross paths. They would worship there. They would sacrifice to the gods. People celebrated this kind of religious plurality uh, uh, together, but they really were, uh, uh, the, the main focus of their worship was around the goddess Artemis. 
Uh, and this is important to know. The goddess Artemis was worshipped kind of above all these, this other pantheon of gods that existed in Ephesus. Artemis was worshipped as a fertility goddess, and she was worshipped for her protection. So protection and fertility. Again, just hold those things in your mind as we work our way through this letter. It'll help you understand what Paul's trying to communicate to these followers of Jesus. But fertility and protection. Her temple was huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Only the foundations remain uh, today, but uh, we can deduce that it was uh, at least three times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So just to give you a a kind of a visual sense of how huge this thing, it was renowned. It was uh, reported to be incredibly beautiful. And so uh, this temple lied at the cultural and economic and spiritual heart of the city. It's important to realize it's a major source of income in the city. You can, you can kind of get your head around that, right? People are coming from all over the world. They're spending their money in Ephesus. Not only that, there's idols being sold to people who come to worship at this temple. Uh, there's sacrifices being sold to people. So generated lots of money. In fact, you can see this in Acts chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul is threatened, his life is threatened because he's challenging the worship of Artemis by inviting people to worship Jesus instead. And that upsets kind of the business of the temple. And so you can see that if you want to go read that in Acts chapter 19. Um, And so there was this religious intensity, right, around Ephesus. And it made the people there kind of hypersensitive, you could say, to the religious world. And this, this expressed itself in a lot of ways. One of the things that would happen is that people practiced a lot of kind of magical rituals. They would carry these religious tokens and trinkets around. They would say these special kind of incantations and prayers for the gods to protect them and provide blessing. But they also meant, it also meant they lived in this kind of constant state of worry and fear, right? Worry about the evil spirits they needed protection from and uh, if they'd done enough to appease the gods, And so when the Apostle Paul comes to Ephesus, that's the city he enters into. This is the culture that he's coming to. And when he comes, he brings a message of hope for these people living in this culture. Uh, He lived and worked among the Ephesians for about three years. Uh, He shared through the power of the Holy Spirit the good news of Jesus Christ. And God used him to break through this darkness and the spiritual confusion. and, And people came to faith in Jesus. It was amazing. So he was there for three years, and then he left. And the letter that you have in front of you, that we just read the opening to, this letter was written to uh, the Ephesians about six years after he left. So he was there for three years, he leaves, and then he writes a letter to this community six years later. And he's writing from prison. So keep that in mind, too. As he's writing about the beauty and the power and the hope and the joy to these Ephesians, he's writing from literally a Roman prison. Uh, And so he's writing to them and he's encouraging them to trust in the truth and the power of the gospel and its promise of this new and beautiful and fulfilling life with God. So that's kind of the context for the letter. Um, And what I want to highlight here as we kind of get into the letter is that central to Paul's message in this letter is this matter of identity. Central to Paul's message is the matter of identity. And you can see that in verses 1 and 2, right off the bat. Uh, It's so important for him. He outlines its significance. He highlights its significance in the first two lines of his letter. So let's look at what he says about identity here. First, he writes, 
Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice that Paul first clearly states his own identity, right? He says, this is who I am. And who is he? He's an apostle in Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, what stands out to me uh, about that is Paul's absolute confidence. Right? He's just right off the bat. This is, hey, I am an apostle in Christ Jesus by the will of God. Confidence, and yet there's this humility, right? Because it's by the will of God that he's affirming this identity. So confident that he's an apostle. What's an apostle? An apostle uh, comes from the Greek apostolos, which means, does anybody know? It's our namesake. Sent ones, right? We are the apostles. Y'all say this with me. We are the sent ones, the apostles, right? That's who we are. Apostles, Houston, we're the sent ones. Apostles are sent into the world by Christ to tell people about Christ. That's pretty much the bottom line. So that's how Paul sees his identity, one of the ways he sees his identity. But notice that he's an apostle by the will of God, by the will of God, this humility. He is only who he is because of who God says he is, in other words. He is only who he is because of who God has said that he is. Kent Hughes wrote a, a great commentary that uh, I pulled this from. This is just, I think it's a beautiful quote kind of summarizing what Paul is saying here. He says, Paul's opening words celebrate a self that has been liberated from the crushing bondage of ego. Man, make that your prayer this week. God, would you deliver me from the crushing bond of my ego? <laughs> prayer that, that, that kind of says that, that's what he starts with. Called to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus and imbued with divine authority and purpose. Paul was who he was, not because of what he had done or what he possessed, but because of who Jesus was. And beginning on the road to Damascus, who Jesus said he was, right? That's his identity. He was an apostle by the will of God. So he's confident of his identity, but he's also confident in the identity of those he's writing to, right? He's confident that they are what? They're called saints, right? They're saints. I'm writing to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ, he says. Now, saints... Uh, doesn't mean all those people that are holier than all of us, right? That's how we tend to think of, oh, the holy, like the saints, you know, let's, no, that's not who he's talking about. He's talking about all of us. He's talking about all the followers of Jesus in Ephesus are called the saints. What does it mean? Whenever you see saints in the New Testament, don't translate it saints. I think there's so much baggage for us. Tran translate it as the holy ones, or you could call it those set apart for God. You could drop that in there in your mind when you read saints. That's who he's talking to. It's described, in other words, a group of people and what's happened in their hearts through Jesus. He's calling them saints. And he says, even as you're living in the shadow of these pagan temples and all this old way of life and these old identities, you're saints. You're set apart for God. And you're faithful. You're faithful. You're actively believing and trusting in God. And again, all of that is in Christ Jesus, he says. He says that twice. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, and you are the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. 
And he's going to come back to that again and again. We're going to look at that in Ephesians as we go through. In Christ comes up again and again and again and again for Paul. It is key for us to understand our own identity. So Paul writes about his identity. He writes about his reader's identity. And here's the question I think that comes out of this for us. The question is, who gets to say who we are? If we're asking the question, who am I? Part of what we need to figure out is, well, who gets to answer that question? Who gets to say who you are? Who gets to say who I am? So I wanna, I wanna process this a little bit together this morning. In our culture, let's think about this. In our culture, we're faced with an almost infinite chorus of voices who are ready and eager and willing to tell us exactly who we are. And one of those voices we have to acknowledge is our own voice. There's all these voices telling us who we are, and one of those voices is our own voice. A psychologist writing for Psychology Today, I came across this this week, and I thought he just totally described the kind of cultural, kind of, I don't know, call it zeitgeist, this kind of ethos, this what our culture believes about identity. He said it this way. He said, our identity should be seen as an ongoing process rather than a static snapshot. It's not just set. He says we should embrace a flowing sense of self whereby we are perpetually reframing and reorganizing and rethinking and recreating and reconsidering who we are. Early in the article, he actually says this. He says, asking who am I isn't even a worthwhile question. Uh, Rather, we should enter into a relationship with self that commits to our personal evolution. That's our culture right? That's our culture's path to identity. Now, it's important to notice a couple of things, I think, that this highlights in our culture. One of them is, it's important for us to realize that there's no transcendence involved in this definition of identity, right? There's no sense of transcendent answer to the question of identity. And so, for an increasing people, number of people in our culture, identity is a naturalistic project formed only by our own thoughts and experiences, What that means is it assumes that your identity is something that you alone control and are free to create however you see fit. Let me just say that again because this is so in the water, right? Our kids are drinking this up every day, just so you're aware. Your identity is something that you alone control and are free to create as you see fit. In other words, there's no limits. There's no boundary to what defines you, you can create yourself. Now, if that sounds kind of, okay, well, maybe on the extreme or the fringes of society, maybe that's true. You just whole whole cloth reinvent yourself. Let me give you an example of how this is manifesting itself in mainstream culture now, mainstream culture. So the transgender movement in our culture is perhaps what I would say one of the most profound examples of the belief in self-constructed identity, right? And let me just say, pause here. I am not uh, seeking to address kind of pastoral issues around human sexuality and transgender. Um, What I'm trying to say is, and I want to say that very clearly, because the church above all places should be a place where those who struggle with questions of their identity, gender identity included, feel safe to do so right, to find out who they are in Christ. Um, So what I'm saying, I'm simply doing to highlight where gender uh, intersects with this question of identity. 
So last summer, uh, I think it was lost on a lot of people that something monumental happened around this question of gender identity. So in the midst of COVID, in the midst of the race uh, kind of uh, you know, stuff that was going on in our country, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, this is the U.S. Supreme Court, ruled that gender and sexual identity are solely a social construct and not a natural and biological fact. Let me just read that again. The United States Supreme Court ruled that sexual identity and gender are solely a social construct and not a natural or biological fact. In other words, the U.S. government has now officially and radically redefined what it means to be human. It took up a legal question about discrimination and handed out an existential proclamation. This is what is, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. Human identity options are no longer impeded by physical reality. Human identity options are no longer impeded by physical reality. The cultural belief that identity is something that I alone control. Again, that I am free to create as I see fit. Has been enshrined in law. Now, the question is, how does that happen? How did this happen? How did this develop? I would say there's two things that we have to realize that are going on here. One is, this is certainly a a spiritual attack. There is a spiritual reality to what's taking place where there is an assault on the God-created identity as those who are made in the image of God, male and female, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. That's what's taking place. It's also true that this is uh, the outworking of and kind of the fruit of, of the Enlightenment, really going further back than that in terms of philosophical thought. So just bear with me because I want to I press into this just a little bit on the philosophical side because I think it's important. So ideas about identity uh, emerge based on philosophical claims like that of Rene Descartes who famously said, and I'm going to try to sound really smart by saying this in Latin, so uh, cogito ergo sum. Latin scholars, did I get that right? Yes, I'm getting nods. Awesome. Anybody know what that means? Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. You've heard that, right? I think, therefore I am. Now what Descartes has done here is he's divorced body from mind. At least that's what those who came after him interpreted what he had said to mean. It's created a dualism, right? You see that? A dualism between soul and or mind and body, which itself actually harkens back to platonic dualistic thought of ideal and real. Like all that's kind of in the mix here and it's kind of coming to a head and the physical and the spiritual of our humanity are now being kind of parsed out, separated from each other. Um, And I just want to say, you know, this is way more than we can get into right now. That is not a Christian understanding of what it means to be human. We, we've kind of imbibed some, some of this stuff along the way through the history of the church. Uh, and and it, you don't have to look anywhere else than the resurrection of Jesus Christ to know that there is no split between body and spirit or heart and mind. You are one. They are fully integrated. Uh, the resurrection testifies to that. Jesus rode not as just a spirit, but in a body. And we are told that we will have resurrected bodies with Christ. So... Let me just say, too, I would recommend a book by Sharon Dirks, uh, D-I-R-C-K-X, called Am I Just My Brain? Amazing book, kind of talking about all of this kind of philosophical stuff. So, who we are is our soul, and it frees us from our physical reality to be whoever we want to be. 
That's where we've landed because of all that stuff. Uh, and it sounds good, right? Like, I just want to acknowledge, it sounds, it sounds good. Like, I'm free to be whoever I want to be. We say that to our kids. I hear that said to kids all the time. Be whoever you want to be, right? And, and I get some of that is encouraging, but some of that is rooted in this stuff. We just need to be careful because it actually leads not to freedom, It sounds like freedom, but it doesn't lead to freedom. It actually leads to an endless quest for our identity. We end up being uh, ships eternally at sea with no real destination when it comes to identity. With so many options and so many voices telling us who we are, no wonder in this kind of soup there's so much insecurity, confusion, anxiety, and depression about identity in our society today. So... I would, if you, if you didn't follow any of that, let me just say, sum it up with this. Infinite choice of identity, which is what we're being presented by within our culture. Infinite choice of identity is not true freedom. Rather, it leads to an exhausting and never-ending search uh, marked by deep insecurity, fear, and loneliness. And that's the identity crisis going on in our world right now. And I said this before, especially in our kids our kids are feeling this acutely. And if you don't believe me, read that book that I mentioned, Chap Clark, uh, When Kids Hurt. So let me come back to our question. Who then gets to say who you are? Who gets to say who I am? If it's left to others or to me, my identity is very clearly a big, painful mess. Uh, so what's the alternative? Here's the alternative. What if like Paul... We let God say who we are. What if, like Paul, we let God tell us who we truly are? I mean, just just imagine, right? I mean, some of us are living this, but let's just really embrace our imaginations here. Imagine what it feels like, you know, fully to be free by knowing exactly who you are according to God. If the God of the universe who made you who loves you, who knows you through and through, whose grace has been demonstrated to you that nothing you can do can separate you from his love. If that God comes to you and says, this is who you are, how freeing is that? How freeing is it? How confidence building is it? Not just in this life, but for eternity. This is who you are. And that's what Ephesians is gonna lay out for us. It's gonna lay out this beautiful picture of who we are. What if you knew who you were because the one person in the universe with an infinite and eternal perspective, the one who created you and loves you, has told you who you are? So we're gonna look at Ephesians and what we're gonna find is that Ephesians is gonna give us a beautiful picture. It's gonna tell us the gospel because this is at the heart of the gospel, who we are in Christ is what Paul's gonna lay out. And we'll discover that we're personally and intimately united in Christ in this relationship with him. We're part of him. Paul says we're part of his family. Paul says we're part of his body in this spiritual, but also this very real sense. We're gonna find out we're chosen. We're gonna find out that we are uh, precious uh, children who've been adopted. We're beloved. We're his inheritance. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. This is who we are in Christ. And Ephesians is gonna lay that out for me, for us. And so it's out of this identity in Christ 
that Paul greets them and says these words in Ephesians 1-2, grace to you and peace from, our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, to quote Kent Hughes, he says this. He says, this greeting bears the poetry of redemption. I love that. He's talking about this line, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls that the poetry of redemption. This is what he means. He says, it reveals how the good news of Jesus Christ works. Grace comes first, and it fills our lives through the Holy Spirit, and it brings shalom. It brings peace, reconciliation, and wholeness. That's the gospel. That's the gospel speaking to our identity and our lives. The first half of Ephesians is going to hammer into us this is who we are in Christ. This is our identity, this grace, this gift of who we are in Christ. The second half of it is going to uh, bring before us uh, this idea of shalom, uh, the hope that we have, the healing that we have, the joy that is ours in Christ. So to put it another way, just if, if you want to hold a loose framework of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3, you could say, is the gospel truth that defines who we are. Ephesians 4 through 6 is the gospel practice that shapes how we live. All right, so 1 through 3, gospel truth. 4 through 6, gospel practice. And so we're going to dive into this letter. We're going to let the Holy Spirit use it to tell us who we are in Christ and to show us how we live this life made new in Jesus. The message of Ephesians is one of hope. And in Jesus, our worldview and our desires no longer define who we are, but are redeemed and reordered and reestablished in a beautiful and life-giving way that glorifies God. And so we get to go on this adventure together in Christ to grow into the fullness of who we are in him. So we're going to mine this letter uh, for all it's worth for the next four months. Um, and so I, I'm going to close. I want to give you two things that I want to ask you to do over the next four months as we're going through this. We're going to go through this all the way to the end of May. Take a little break at Easter, but all the way through the end of May, I want us to do these two things together. So this is an encouragement slash challenge. All right, the first one is read Ephesians once a week for the next four months. Read Ephesians once a week for the next four months. It's six chapters. It'll take you 20 minutes if you read it start to finish. If you want to listen to it on a walk, listen to it in the car. Just find a way to get Ephesians into your week uh, every week. And here's what I'll promise. If you'll do this, I'll promise you uh, a few things are going to happen. One, you'll understand the gospel in a way you've never understood it before because that's what Paul does. He lays out the beauty and the power of the gospel in Ephesians. And so you'll know and understand the gospel in new ways. Two, the Spirit will work through this letter in powerful ways to bring healing, wholeness, and hope in your own life. Do you want that? I want that. Get into the Word. Get into Ephesians and let the Holy Spirit use it to bring those things. Third thing, you'll talk about the gospel with your spouse, kids, friends, more than you ever have before. If you read it every week, it'll get in your thoughts. You'll start to, it'll just start bubbling out of you. You'll start talking about it with everybody else. Four months, once a week. That's the challenge. Second thing I would say is honestly wrestle with this question, who am I? Honestly wrestle with it. And this is, this is what I mean. You know, for some of us, this, that's an easy question because where we are in life right now. We're kind of maybe already asking questions of identity. Uh, but you may be thinking this morning, well, I know who I am in Christ. You know, I, I totally am on board with what you're saying and what Paul's got going on here, but I, I know who I am in Jesus. So here's what's interesting to me. Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter laying out the gospel and how to live it uh, to who? Christians, right? To those in Christ, the faithful 
right, in Christ. So he wrote it to Christians, not people who didn't know the gospel. I mean, praise God, those people get it too. But he wrote it not to those who haven't heard the gospel or don't know how to follow Jesus, but people already knew. Now, why did he do that? Why did he wait, you know, six years later and he wrote the whole thing? He's already told them all that. Same reason, they need it the same reason we do. We are prone to forget the gospel. We are prone to returning to our old ways and our old identities. And so if you know who you are in Christ, what I would say to you is praise God that you know who you are in Christ. I would also say the moment we think we don't need to be reminded of who we are in Christ is precisely the moment we need to hear the gospel again. So pray about this question. Wrestle with this question. Who am I? And let the gospel help you know the answer. All right, so honestly wrestle with the question and again, read it once a week for the next four months. Sound good? Okay, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, this morning... We thank you for the gift of your word, or we thank you that um, thousands of years ago, your faithful servant Paul went to this city and proclaimed the gospel, and that people's lives were changed by it, and they came to know who they were in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would do again what you've done before, that through the proclamation of the gospel, people would come to know who they are in Christ. We would come to know who we are in Christ. And because of that, we could live as faithful witnesses of all that you are and all that you've done in our own lives. And so, Lord, I just want to create some space this morning. Holy Spirit, I just invite you into this moment. Lord, you know um, what's going on in each of our lives. And you know those places around our identity that we may be wrestling, where we may be hurting. Lord, I'm just mindful that when we bring up things like identity, uh, Lord, there's been a lot of things that have been spoken into our lives about who we are, and some of those things are not true. Or there's been a lot of things that have happened in our lives that have shaped the, the way we see ourselves, and a lot of those things are not true. So, Lord, as we, we press into this question of who am I, Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would go before us and protect us, We pray, Lord, as, as maybe wounds come up or fears come up, Lord, that you would remind us that you love us and are for us and with us. And Lord, I pray too for, for healing in deep places of need within our own lives. Lord, I pray for healing in, in relationships. Lord, I pray for um, Lord, deliverance from some of these lies that we've carried with us about who we are. Your Holy Spirit can do that, Lord. You can bring us into the truth and the grace of who we are in Christ. So I pray this over each of us. I pray this over those watching online. Lord, that we would know who we are in Christ.